Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. We'll take a look at surrogacy laws in Ireland and why the current legislation is failing to protect families with a special interview with Brian and Cathy Egan and their surrogacy journey to Ukraine. Minister of State for Special Education Josepha Madigan and surrogacy solicitor Annette Hickey will be here. The Government Climate Action Plan, which was published today, aims to have almost one million electric vehicles in operation in Ireland by 2030. But how achievable is this? Environmentalist Aina Nilauna and independent TD Dennis Nocton will discuss. And later, a look back at the biggest news stories of the week. You can get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag, TonightVMTV. Earlier this week, families gathered at Leinster House to protest over the slow pace of surrogacy legislation here in Ireland. The Cabinet is to propose terms of reference for a special joint Oireachtas committee to report back with recommendations on international surrogacy. Well, Brian and Cathy Egan had eight miscarriages after their first son, Harry, was born and so began researching other ways to have another child. This led the couple to surrogacy in Ukraine. Their second son, Luke, was born in 2019. Brian recently started treatment for cancer, which the family say has highlighted the failure of current legislation. I sat down with Brian and Cathy to hear their story. So, Brian and Cathy, let's start the start. Um, you married in 2007 and knew you wanted children. Um, tell us a little bit about what led you on your surrogacy journey. Um, so, Harry came along two years after we were married. Um, very easily, in hindsight, we thought all pregnancies would be like that. Um, wanted a baby, conceived a baby and delivered him. He was perfect and we thought we'd have maybe three or four more um, but it wasn't wasn't to be the case and uh, when we did we became pregnant and were overjoyed but that pregnancy ended at 14 weeks through unexplained miscarriage and then subsequently there were uh, seven more losses over the next number of years before we decided that um, if we were to have a brother or sister for Harry it would um, I wouldn't be able to carry myself. So we had to look at the only other option that was available to us. Um, we just, we were adamant we weren't giving up and that option was surrogacy. So we began our research then. And what did you think when you first heard about surrogacy? It was a foreign word to us, I suppose, uh, Claire, you know, and, uh, you know, we just wanted to try and say have a sibling for Harry, whatever way we could. So we just said everything we, we try and do in life, we try and do it right, you know, so we said, we said we'd research it. You know, so uh, we didn't know a whole lot about it. The biggest thing, I suppose, was we joined a WhatsApp group, you know, and we met with our solicitor, Annette, here in Kilkenny. 
it was it was brilliant all the way along and still is, you know, but the WhatsApp group was a lot of parents out there. We thought we were the only ones. There was hundreds on the group and, you know, women that had been through heartbreaking conditions, you know, cancer, stuff like that, uh, that had no choice for surrogacy. We learned more, we researched the clinics, we researched the countries. We just wanted to do it right, you know, for, for our baby, for the surrogate, uh, tick all the boxes and hopefully have a solution, you know. So tell us about Luke's arrival into the world on the 24th of May, 2019. Uh, I was in, in contact with our coordinator uh, just about accommodation in Lviv where we were going to be staying and I was asking her about some addresses over there and their proximity to the hospital and the clinic and the next thing she said I'll I'll get back to you shortly um, we were just at an appointment here with uh, Mariana our surrogate and I think uh, they're going to admit her her blood pressure is a little high so that was about 9.30 <laughs> Irish time and uh, over the next hour and a half um, Basically, by 11.30, I had a picture of, of Luke on my phone. He'd been born four weeks early, came very quick, and uh, Mariana was a, an absolute superstar. She was in pushing for one hour, um, did everything that was asked of her, and as soon as Luke was born, uh, her first wish was that we could see him straight away, and was everything okay? Can you tell Cathy and Brian he's okay? And he was perfect. Absolutely perfect. So unfortunately at that time there were no direct flights yet. Uh, Ryanair have since stepped up to the mark there. <laughs> but uh, we flew through Madrid through the night with Harry. It was the, the most exhilarating, exciting and terrifying 24 hours of our life. But we, we landed and we got there and we ran into the hospital. And unfortunately children are not allowed into the special baby units. So Harry had to wait in the lobby. He was very brave. <laughs> It was two years ago, he was only 10. Yeah. We were all gowned up and we went in and we, we met Luke and he was absolutely tiny and beautiful and amazing and we took him home a day and a half later. Um, this little boy is so loved and so longed for, not just by myself, Brian and Harry, but our parents have been through the losses with us, you know. Every time we told them we were expecting, you know, they go to the same place as we go, think of the due date and another grandchild and um, they were heartbroken for us. So this was a huge joyous occasion for everybody, our friends, our family and um, he's, he's just our little miracle, you know. But let's get to Irish law on this, Cathy, because under the laws here, you're not recognised as Luke's mother. So what has that meant in very practical terms, in real terms, for you both as parents? Uh, I suppose day to day when we're here at home it's it's not something that's to the forefront of my mind but if you do sit down and think about um, medical procedures, school enrolment, um, even the fact that if anything had happened to Brian before Luke turned two he had no, no legal parent or guardian. Um, it's, it's tough. I look at the boys and they're nearly identical, 10 years apart, and he's 100% the same DNA as his brother. He's 50% my DNA, 50% Brian's, and yet on paper, in the eyes of Irish law, I have no relationship to, to Luke. I'm, as since he turned two, I'm now his legal guardian, but that would be relinquished when he turns 18. And even, you know, succession rights down the line when myself and Brian you know, pass away or will, it's, Luke will be treated differently to Harry and it's, it's so unfair. He's his brother in every every sense. Um, we were lucky that we were able to go down the route of surrogacy and someone, someone gave us that gift and, you know, Mariana 
was our angel, but she was our surrogate and she, she was never intending to, to be any sort of a mother to, to Luke, but on, in the eyes of Irish law, because the physical act of delivering him, she's the only mother that our Irish law recognises. And then in June of this year, Brian, you got some really bad news that both of you have had to deal with as a couple and as a family. Tell us about that. Yeah, Claire, just uh, early June this year, very beginning of June, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Uh, so it was a bit of a shock. I'm relatively fit and healthy and, you know, it's a shock shock for anyone to get that, that kind of news, you know. And unfortunately, in my, my case, it's a, it's a very aggressive form of prostate cancer. Uh, so I had immediate surgery in June and unfortunately disease had spread beyond the prostate. So I'm currently undergoing uh, treatment, you know, in Dublin for that. Hopefully it'll be around for a long time to come, you know, for uh, for everybody. But uh, it's there's a battle ahead. It's not straightforward. But, you know, this is not about prostate cancer. It's just a show, I suppose, the big thing for us was how precarious the situation it is for Cathy. I'm, I'm good. Yeah, no, I feel good. You know, the, the medical team have been brilliant. Uh, Cathy and my family have been brilliant and friends. You really realise how brilliant people are get messages the whole time and uh, you know that's, that's the mad thing I'm feeling fit and healthy I'm going to give it my best to drive on it's, it's an uncertain future you don't know you know especially with the, the aggressive form of prostate cancer I have but uh, there are brilliant treatments out there and they're actually changing every day so uh, feeling good you know and you have to be fit and healthy for the boys you know like in a way if your two year old is running around the house if your 12 year old yeah. who wants to play soccer and hardly certainly and not that. going easy on him so uh, living life as normal as we can and uh, you know getting through it Claire. And with this diagnosis Cathy what are your fears? My fears are, they're, they're for Luke, they're not for myself. Um, I'm a, a member of Irish Families Through Surrogacy and uh, I, I have the same fears. I share the fears with all the parents in that group um, that our children are not recognised um, under Irish law as, as equal citizens, um, you know, apart from the fact that we're not entitled to maternity leave. Or, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a deeper issue, it's an inequality and it's unfair and there are no reasons, there are no obstacles why we can't have a pathway to parenthood. And even the simple things of, we talk about it the whole time, when are we going to tell Luke, you know, and we want to be able to tell him when, you know, the legislation is right and all that and, and there's not a bigger story around it. We'll, we'll always tell him anyway, but just that the fact that there's not a bigger challenge out there for him, you know, so we worry about it the whole time. And something which you're both very keen to highlight is that you say surrogacy isn't a choice. It's, it's the last option. Yeah, and it's even some of the simple things, Claire, like that, uh, you know, Cathy would love to, to have carried Luke, you know, it's a natural thing, you carry your baby and all that, like, so she gets sad about that at times, I feel sorry for her, you know, and uh, Luke will have those questions, I suppose, in future, was I in your, be in your belly, mammy? You know, simple, normal questions, mm -hmm. you know, so without a doubt, surrogacy wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, something we, we chose. It was our last choice, and we're delighted. It's fantastic, as, as Cathy said, Luke and Harry are best friends, He's very much our son and we're a complete family and we're, we're so happy. But it was something we had to go down. And apart from these simple things like not being able to carry your own baby, you know, the logistics that you have to go through as you heard, you know, going to Ukraine, you know, there's costs involved, which, uh, you know, you'll do anything to be able to overcome those, those hurdles because it's like a, it's an important thing in life, you know. But it it's absolutely should be available closer to home. Um, there, again, it just needs to be legislated for. There's no reason why it can't happen. And it, it is happening. You know, it is happening. People are having children through surrogacy every day in this country. And um, it, it really is a call to action to the government to recognise what everybody knows about these children, that who their mothers are. 
these children know it, their families know it, we are their mammies and we will not stay quiet until that is recognised in Irish law. We are Irish citizens and so are they. Cathy and Brian Egan speaking to me from their home in Kilkenny. Well, here in studio, Minister of State for Special Education, Josepha Madigan, and surrogacy lawyer, Annette Hickey. And Annette, I'd like to come to you first on this. Um, you're representing Cathy um, and Brian. You're helping families like them. There are families right up and down the country who are in this same predicament. Can you outline to us what the laws are as they currently stand? What provision is in place? If any, at all, for there are families. There are families in every county of Ireland tonight watching that video. And this is the nightmare situation. People, parents out there have had children through surrogacy and they're looking at Cathy and Brian and they're thinking, what if that happened to us? Um, at the moment in Ireland, there is no law. It's unregulated. Um, the woman who gives birth to the child is deemed to be the mother uh, by the very act of giving birth. Uh, paternity can be proven by a DNA test. So we bring it back to Brian and Cathy. Brian's DNA shows that he is the biological father of this child. The fact that Cathy is the biological mother has no relevance to this situation. Um, they've got two children there, but um, in the eyes of Irish law, Brian is the father of two children and Cathy is the mother of one. Um, given Brian's uh, current health situation, um, which I know the outpouring of support around the country today when people heard they were coming on tonight has been just unbelievable. Um, they've got messages from all over the place, Ireland, international. I mean, they're a phenomenal couple. You look at that family there and I have to ask the question, if Cathy's not Luke's mother, who is she? What is she? Does our government say she's a stranger to him? Is she a carer? Um, you know, and I mean, we're looking at a situation where we've been looking for legislation. Families have been looking for legislation. The first Commission on Assisted Human Reproduction was in 2000. There was recommendations from that commission in 2005. One of those recommendations was that the children born through surrogacy, they should be presumed to be the children of the commissioning. Parents, plural. The 2017 Act, well, uh, the scheme was published in 2017, the Joint Health Committee issued recommendations in 2019, where the committee said that they were looking towards uh, bilateral and multilateral agreements in order to introduce standards in relation to international surrogacy. We then have Professor Conor O'Mahony's report in 2020, where Conor O'Mahony uh, was appointed by the Minister for Children to provide recommendations on surrogacy. He has recommended, um, he has issued recommendations, he has put in legal safeguards, he's looked at the legal difficulties, he's looked at the ethical difficulties. The concern would be, and I'm bringing it back to Brian and Cathy, their child is here. He's here now. Brian is here now. If, God forbid, Brian was not here in the future and the government brings in legislation for retrospective pathways to parenthood, in Conor Manor's recommendations, he says that the intended parents must consent. If, if the parent is deceased, how can they consent? There's a family unit there. We must, do we not cherish our children and cherish our family? So I, as Brian and Cathy's parent, I'm here tonight speaking on their behalf and on Luke's behalf, and I'm pleading to the government to bring forward legislation. The, the, the statement that the Department of Justice published on Tuesday uh, said that the Department of Justice, that the state was committed to dealing with international surrogacy. I think we're modelling international surrogacy and retrospective pathways. International surrogacy for the future, for the future children. Fair enough, we can talk about that another time, but this is children that are here now and parents that are here and now who can consent.
Josefa, people will be watching that and say, is this Ireland in 2021 mm -hmm. that a couple come home with a newborn baby and yet Cathy Egan is considered a legal stranger to her son? Yeah. First of all, it, it, it was um, it was really sad to, to listen to their story. Um, positive, I suppose, that Luke was born healthy and well, but it's difficult to hear Brian's uh, story, and I just want to personally wish him all the best uh, in the future, obviously. Uh, I'm a solicitor myself, as Annette will know, and uh, many of my former colleagues dealt with, with issues around surrogacy for many years. And in fact, as a backbencher myself, I wrote an article uh, in, in, in 2016 in relation to this issue because I felt that the pace wasn't going fast enough in and terms that was 2016. of 2016. So and, what do you think and, about well, what happening, what's happening now well, or not happening? Well, just, just to finish, so so that was 2016, and the assisted human reproduction bill actually went to pre-legislative scrutiny in 2017. Um, and since then, obviously, there's been an issue because the AG said that there's concerns, uh, as Annette mentioned, some of them around international issues. Um, and I, I'm aware of Conor O'Mahony's report, and he actually, I think put it very well when he said we're in a legal twilight zone, which I think we are. I mean, the good news about this from the government's perspective, and I suppose just to answer that, is the fact that the Minister for Children, the Minister for Health and the Minister for Justice are bringing a memo in a matter of weeks in relation to this issue. So from a legislative perspective, and also the fact that there's going to be a special Oireachtas committee set up who are going to scrutinise, interrogate all of the issues around surrogacy. I mean, I note that Conor O'Mahony says that, you know, we really should have a surrogacy um, provision uh, and mm. uh, in, in domestically rather than just internationally and I think when, when we look at special Oireachtas health uh, or committees you know they worked very well for example for appeal the eighth it can be a delicate issue a sensitive issue for families um, and I really want to mention as well Senator Mary Siri Carney who's done incredible work uh, in relation to this and told her own story uh, very generously to the Irish public about her look, journey. And it seems that there has been a lot of discussion around it a lot of thought around it now we have got a committee around it but when are couples like Brian and Cathy going to know you know what they're they're valid parents mm -hmm. and also recognizing the urgency of this situation for so many families around the country to see that we stop talking about it yeah. and legislate on it as the families are, are, are clearly looking for yeah and I, I do think there's a momentum. Uh, I think that a, ment a momentum has, has built up and I think um, you know, many of the advocacy groups uh, who have been referenced tonight have, have had yeah. you know, a huge assistance in doing that as well as uh, Senator Mary Carney. Um, and I, I think that now that we're going to have this Oireachtas Committee set up, the fact that we're going to have this memo, this joint memo covering to government is going to be a, a And so a what will value. it mean? Like how soon you know, do you think that there will be legislation around this? How soon would the government like to see it? We saw Helen McEntee, she was out there with the families mm -hmm. this week. Yeah. Uh, we saw Roger Gorman there showing a special interest in it. Yeah. But well, as yet, no action. Well, well it'll, be a matter of, it'll be a matter of weeks before the memo of Cabinet, in a matter of weeks, it's going to be brought to Cabinet. So I imagine they'll set out the proposals in terms of a legislative regime. I mean, I think we have to remember, and I think Annette will appreciate this, you know, and, and as family lawyers, we do. It is a very complex area. Um, but I do think it, it's now, it's time as you said it's a modern Ireland a modern society and um, there are many many couples who used to come to me who still come to me in my constituency clinic who have gone through surrogacy some who, who don't 
talk about it publicly um, because they feel there's a stigma or shame around it. Mothers feel that they're not real mothers because, you know, mm. that they're, they don't have the same rights uh, and all of that has to be dealt with. Yeah, Annette, uh, the complexities that Joseph was talking about, what sort of complexities are there um, well, in terms of had... regulating around it? Because that's what's held it back. I think the, we've the, had... The ethical questions that may have been put out there around surrogacy. I think Conor Romani has addressed those ethical questions in his report and I think we've got to bring it back. Like, we've been 21 years waiting. The first IV baby was born in the UK in 1978. They introduced legislation which provides for parental orders for both parents in 1985. The first IVF baby was born in Ireland in 1986. Here we are in 2021. Let's be almost 2022. And yes, we we are, I suppose, um, heartened to see that there is momentum and the government are engaging with all of the various advocacy groups and again I would like to compliment and thank Senator uh, Mary Siri Carney. she's done Trojan work um, there's various groups out there advocacy groups there are mums and dads around the country who have spoken um, on regional radio on newspapers are engaging with their local politicians there seems to be cross-party support but talk 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 yeah. we need to see results we need Brian and Kathy Egan are at home on their couch tonight watching this. Um, he's in the middle of treatment, um, talking about you know another committee, another report. When couples look at the 2000 commission, the, 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 the 2017. The saying that about this, this special doctors uh, committee is that it, it is it is time. Uh, there's a timeline to it, so it's only four months, um, and those recommendations will be given to the Minister of, of Health, and then when when the assisted human reproductive bill goes through, uh, they can put their, their, the, the inputs in um, at, um, at the okay. committee stage. Uh, and I want to so. ask you, because this deals with international surrogacy, mm. but domestic surrogacy, mm. um, there would be a demand for it. We've seen, you know, from hearing uh, Cathy and Brian's story and seeing all it's those couples yeah. outside the door, mm. it, it is happening. Mm. Does there need to be regulation around that? Does it yeah, need to be I mean, a safe space? Well, this is what the, the bill actually does. It does provide a regulatory framework, uh, but not just for surrogacy, for IVF as well um, uh, and other issues. And there's a lot of infertility in Ireland in general, you know, and there is two million that is pledged, you know, by Simon Harris in, in the last government once, once we get the, the bill through. OK, so for people listening in tonight, um, is there a sense of hope that, that yeah, some change I will think, come about? I think so, yes. OK, well, we'll have to leave it there. Um, for anyone affected by this story tonight, you can access contact helplines on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines. Well, my thanks to Brian and Cathy Egan for sharing their story with us and to solicitor Annette Hickey. Josefa Madigan will be staying with us. Um, and coming up after the break, we'll be seeing one million electric cars on our roads by 2030. Or will we? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome back. Now, government plans to have one million electric vehicles on roads by 2030. But is this achievable given the current difficulty in installing charging points? Minister of State Josepha Madigan is still here and I'm joined by independent TD Dennis Nocton and environmentalist Aina Nilauna. Of course, that was just one of the points in this climate action plan that was released and published today that people are mulling over the big ambitious targets. Aina, I want to come to you first on it. So much rhetoric this week at home and abroad at, at, at COP26. Um, what do you make of I suppose, the words of government on a, on a global standing and then what we're seeing in this big report about tackling what is a climate emergency. How long have we got now, given the length of the report? Not as long as you'd like. Not, not as long. No, I must say, I thought the Taoiseach did a, a splendid job over in, over in Glasgow with his three-minute speech. I mean, he came along and said we were digging our own graves or, you know, that climate change was really, really in the most important issue. And we were all delighted that somebody came along and actually said this, you know, and really sincerely meant it. Signed up to his 30% methane reduction and then comes home and what's been done at his country level is different to what's been done or what's been signed up to at an international level doesn't necessarily seem to be being followed through at a country level at a local level so you know that's that's the first thing that jumps out at one now we of course we have our our plan today that has been issued and as you said a million cars a million electric cars by the year 2030 that's nine years from now so let's take it on average 936,000 cars that's 100,000 cars a year now we only about sell 120 by 120,000 new cars a year mm. which would mean that every single practically car that's bought for the next 10 years has to be in or nine years has to be an electric car to meet that target and how many were sold this year so far? Well, until until um, oh, September of this year, 7,157 electric cars have been sold, not 100,000 or anything like that. And it. why do you think people are, are not buying them? Because the cost is really being put out there. Now, the government will say there are grants for that. And, you know, in terms of technology, these electric cars can get a, a lot of mileage before you have to charge up again, that they are the option and that they're going to be the only option for us. Yeah, my three children have electric cars and they're great and they have no range anxiety, nothing, but they can all charge their cars at home. So you really have to be able to bring your car to the front door and charge it. I live in a terraced house, I park my car on the street, I cannot have my wire going from the front door across the footpath or everybody will be brained and therefore 42% of the people in Dublin are in the same situation. If you can't charge your car at home, where are you going? to charge it. Okay, a very practical point, Josefa, and a lot of people will say this, and there's a lot of new builds as well that don't have front gardens, and again, you've got that issue of dragging a cable across a road. Uh, are there going to be changes to allow this really work for people? Yeah, and, and I think, you know, the Taunister hit the nail on the head earlier when he was talking about, you know, 
convincing people as opposed to coercion and kind of having that balance between incentivising people and disincentivising people. So you want people to, to do it of their own accord yeah, rather not, than enforcing them. On that so, note, so just, convincing just, people is one thing. Aina, I'm sure, would love an electric car yeah. of well, all there people. Are, there are 45,000 people so far who are registered to have, have, have an EV and, and your children obviously included in that figure. And there is Many announced today... Uh, a new strategic infrastructure uh, for charging points so that we will have sufficient charging points in advance of the rollout of the million EV vehicles so by 2030. Um, so, well, th th there's going to be what they call a new office as well for low emission vehicles, um, so which will be basically a one-stop shop. So it will have all this information for people who are interested in getting EVs. And, and I think it's important to say that even though the upfront cost is, is more expensive at the moment, it does reduce the running cost by 74% by having an EV. Um, so so there is an incentive there, I think, for, for people to purchase one. Dennis, what do you think when, when you're hearing all about this? Like from a rural Ireland perspective, a lot has been made about the agriculture sector and what's going to happen there. But transport is a really big deal. Aina was saying, now her kids have electric cars, they're not living in Dublin, it's, it's working for them. Do you think it'll work for everyone? And generally speaking, do you think this plan is going to get everyone in rural Ireland engaged? Well, first of all, we're not short on plans. Uh, I published the, the climate mitigation plan in 2017, June 2017. In January 2018, we actually put the money into that uh, when we actually the, published Project Ireland 2040. Uh, then we had the climate action plan, Mark 1, and we've now got the climate action plan, Mark 2. Uh, and if you go back to the original funding model in Project Ireland 2040, we were supposed to be retrofitting 45,000 homes in 2021. That didn't happen because of COVID-19. Next year, we're going to retrofit 22,000 homes, half of the target uh, that is there. And that is the, the difficulty here is we've plenty of plans, but it's actually the delivery on the targets that have been set down. And every year that we delay delivering on those targets, it makes the achieving the target for 2030 uh, much harder and much more expensive. So coming to the question that you're asking, the figures published today as part of the, the Climate Action mm. Plan uh, show that the average household in Ireland will spend €100,000 over the next decade to meet the targets that have been set of this 51%. Disproportionately, people in rural Ireland will pay more, more than will have to have their homes retrofitted, uh, more than will have to buy more expensive electric cars in terms of range, uh, and that will disproportionately impact on them. Yeah, what do you think about this idea around retrofitting? We know that many homes need to get up to that, you know, warm and insulated place so that they can do away with solid fuels and all those other things um, that we don't like anymore. Uh, do you think it, it's practical and reasonable that it, it's going to happen? You're, you're asking me, sorry. Yeah. I am, yeah. Yes, indeed. Well, I mean, obviously, if your house has to, is made warmer, then to keep it at that temperature, you need much less heating, much less fuel. Or, indeed, you could just wear a few more jumpers, like, you know, we did in the old days. But, I mean, that's not the way forward. I mean, the way forward is to retrofit or to build to proper standards in the first instance. And while you're saying that, um, Dennis is saying that there are, there are um, great plans, I mean, I remember talking to Minister Bruton about this million electric cars so long ago as that. I mean, the plans are there, were great for plans. But, I mean, who's going to retrofit the houses? Where are the working people yeah. going to come from to do it? You can't get anyone to fix a tap for you nowadays, never mind to retrofit your house. We're short on people to do the work. Just, just, just on the, the Climate Action Plan, um, this is the very first Climate Action Plan 
um, since since the Act came in, so the Climate Change Act, um, which was passed earlier this year. So it is now in a statutory footing. I mean, this is, is something that I think a lot of us are, are, you know, surprised to a certain extent at the, at the acceleration of the climate crisis over a number of years. Um, really? You know, well, I, I think, are we? I, I think, I, I think, there for I think they've been there for, for decades, but I think people, you know, are only now perhaps realising that actually it will affect them. And well, it's going is that to affect, because the government's it, only talking about it no, now? No, I, I, no, I don't think that's fair. Um, I mean, there were, the, in fact, it was 2019 when there was a climate emergency uh, um, um, uh, declared in the Dáil and uh, Dennis Nocton did a lot of good work on this, as so did Richard Bruton. So it has been going on for a yeah, long well, period of time. Environmentalists and activists will it say... Isn't, it isn't a party we, issue, we, we should in, have fair, been on in this. fairness. It's a global issue um, and we all have to deal with it. Yeah, but in fairness, and just is right like the the significant watershed here has been that legislation that was brought in during the summer and I'm on the doll record as saying I would love to have been in a position where I had the parliamentary tools and the legal tools available to me because I didn't have them to try and drive the the situation in relation to public transport yeah. I just give you one practical example of it uh, we took a decision Josepha a cabinet and myself took a decision that we would have no more fossil fuel buses purchased in Ireland uh, from 2019 okay. on. Sadly, that was pushed down the road and the very first double-decker electric bus will be put on our streets next year. So that's the type we're of really, time to lag that we've had up to really now. We're really lagging behind and, and yet you have, you know, former Fine Gael and Fine Gael here. Who do you think is to blame for it in terms of, do you think it, it sort of, it was, it was a national lack of interest because I'm sure you would say no, people did care, they always cared, they just needed leadership at the top to push it? Well, I mean, you can't be putting the blame on Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael, they're all in it together, the whole lot of them. I mean, we've, I've been talking about this for 30 years, more years than I care to remember. I was president of Antashka talking about it in, in, 10 years ago. I've been a president of, of the Tree Council of Ireland talking about that, don't get me going on trees. But the thing is that we can talk till the cows come home and we have been talking till but the cows come home and nothing has been done. It's still the, I'm sure, oh, Sherlock, it's still what we're going to do. We will do this. We, well, when yeah, are we doing I, I think, When are we well, doing I think with respect, uh, you know, ministers will be accountable. They will have to go in front of Oireachtas uh, committees and ensure that there's compliance. They have targets that they have to follow okay. through. So, I mean, and even if you look at, at the, a, a Dutch court recently uh, made Shell PLC, um, they have to reduce their emissions by 45% by 2030. So even non-state agencies can be held accountable now. This this is an issue that we have to tackle really seriously okay. and uh, in Ireland and, and, and throughout the country. You see, but there, the there is an awful lot in it and mm. all those emission targets are actually backloaded. So as we go on, we're going to have to do an awful lot the more again. The carbon budgets as well. Yeah, the, yeah. Ca the carbon budgets and, the, mm. and those emission targets that we need to reach. So yeah. how soon are we going to see these changes? Like all these big promises, like an increase in renewable energy, wind and solar up to 80% by 2030, yeah. entail investments of tens of billions of euro, a scheme to allow homeowners generate their own electricity that they can then sell back to the grid. Yeah. It all sounds so ambitious. Will it, we it, see change from beginning from next week on this? How soon can we see it? Retrofitting 500,000 houses. It is really ambitious. Um, and, and other than Denmark, uh, we're the only country who, who's having our emissions by, you know, by 2030 so um, and, and net zero emissions by this? 2050. So it, it, it's happening like from, yeah, from now, effectively. Um, and, and, and has been happening. actually. And, and has been happening. 2030, Denmark are doing it by, not by 2050. Yeah, 2030. Yeah, yeah but yeah, they're having them by then. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But they're the same as us. No, no, no. In fact, Denmark are going completely. 
completely, yeah, by yeah. 2030. Yeah. And we're supposed but, to be going But the difficulty with a lot of this, to take the, the yeah. electricity target of, of a reduction of, of 80% renewable energy by 2030, that fails to acknowledge the fact that the demand for electricity is increasing dramatically. We have a situation at the moment where, you know, we're hours at some cases away from electricity being turned off because of the number of data centres that have come onto the electricity grid. And the biggest demand, the main growth sector within electricity over the next three to four years is data centres. And every single electricity customer in the country is going to have to pay for the cost of that renewable electricity to go there. And if we continue yeah. to do what we're doing with data centres, it will make the task of 80% an impossible target yeah. to reach. OK, okay. there is a review of the data centre policy. But, but, but Josefa, Josefa as you know, and well. we had this discussion at yeah. Cabinet in 2018, the decision was taken in June 2018 to stop putting uh, speculative data centres onto the grid and yet Irish electricity customers are still okay. paying there, for that today. We'll have that, to leave it there. And the, the issue of data centres, it is going to come back and it, it will remain very strongly in the agenda and we will come back to it on the show. But for now, we'll leave it there. My thanks to the panel. Lots more after this break, including a look back at some of the biggest news stories this week. Welcome back. Now for a look back at the Newsweek and some stories that made headlines. Environmentalist Aina Nilauna is still here with me. And I'm joined by Irish Times journalist Sarah Burns and co-director of Pathy Point Traveller and Roma Centre, uh, Martin Collins. You're all very welcome along to the programme. Sarah, I want to come to you first. Um, big story this week, um, aside from climate and other matters, were around the, the COVID infection numbers and where they're at, given the number of people who are vaccinated in this country and alarm and, and worry being expressed by, by NEFET. Um, we've had over 3,000 cases, um, nearing nearly 4,000 actually on a day this week. Um, but, but what sort of concern is there out there with these numbers, where they're at now? Yeah, I suppose the big thing is hospitalisation. So Paul Reid came out today and said there's significant and unrelenting pressure on hospitals at the minute on the health system. We have, I think, 458 people in hospital, 90 of those are in ICU. The hospital numbers are a little bit down to what they were about a week ago, but he said it's too early to say if it's kind of levelling off, you know, if this is a trend or not, that we're going to go down. But um, the big thing as well is that we have 3,500 healthcare workers out due to COVID, whether they have the virus themselves or they're close contact. And this is adding to the pressure on the health service. Um, you know, they've had elective surgeries have had to be cancelled across a number of hospitals in recent weeks. Um, the only sort of positive spin on COVID this week is that there's the booster shots for the healthcare workers. And this is something the unions and the workers themselves have been calling for for months, looking for, or not months, but for the last few weeks, looking for the booster shots. And it was just waiting for the NIAC um, advisory to let them get those shots. And 
they'll start to begin to get those from this weekend. So I think it's something like 305,000 healthcare workers will get them from this weekend and it'll go over four to five, or four to five weeks for that. Yeah, and there have been calls as well, like the healthcare workers would say, yes, this is long overdue, Martin, but there have been calls for that booster programme really to be um, spread out well beyond healthcare workers and the over 60s um, to right across the community. Within your own community, would there be a welcome for that, a booster programme? Do you feel that there's a need for it or would it be something that would be welcomed? Well, I still, I still think there are two challenges uh, remaining that need to be addressed. I mean, obviously, the rollout of the booster will be a very important uh, uh, strategy in containing the, the spread of COVID-19. But we also must remember there's a significant cohort of people in Irish society who have refused to be vaccinated to begin with. And that's a problem that needs to be addressed. So I think there's a challenge there for the HSE and for others in terms of message, messaging and encouraging people to get the vaccination. And obviously, if that were to happen, that would be a big plus. Yes, uh, in our community, uh, you know, there, has, there is some hesitancy. Mm. There is still a significant number of travellers, unfortunately, who are quite hesitant and have some uh, fears around getting the vaccine. Where is the hesitancy coming from? I think there's a lot of uh, misinformation and scaremongering, particularly in social media. And traveller organisations such as my own, Pavi Point Traveller and Roma Centre, and indeed many others, are endeavouring and have endeavoured over the last 18 months since the onset of the pandemic to give very accessible, reliable, dependable information to our community that the vaccination is safe and people should get it. Uh, it's about protecting themselves, protecting their families, protecting the community, and indeed about protecting society overall. And I have to say that Traveller Primary Healthcare Projects, of which there are 35 right across the country, have been doing Trojan work in that regard. But nonetheless, unfortunately, there's still a challenge. Uh, there's a significant, significant cohort of travellers who are just really hesitant about getting the vaccine. Um, how is that then playing out? What's happening? Are you seeing a high number of, of COVID cases now in your community? Well, it's it, it, anecdotally, yes. Uh, there's a significant... Uh, uh, a number of travellers who've contracted uh, uh, COVID-19, but it's very hard to gauge accurately because we have ende endeavoured to get a netnic identifier within the data collection system within the HSE, so we could actually assess more accurately the number of travellers who, who have uh, contracted the virus. Uh, that hasn't really been implemented or if it has, it has been very ad hoc and in a very uncoordinated un un way. So we don't actually have reliable data on the number of travellers who have contracted the virus mm. and those who have died. But we do know it is a very significant number. And what would you like to see now in terms... Because, I mean, the government are going big on saying, you know, can people get vaccinated now? They're really trying to push for that final 7% because they say it makes all the difference in terms of those numbers that are ending up in ICU. Mm. So what would you say needs to happen now to kind of, you know... Well, I think it's just to intensify. I think it's about intensifying our, uh, our ongoing efforts, really, because, you know, Pavi Point Travel and Roma Centre and other travel groups have been working very well with, uh, with the HSE in our messaging to make sure that it's reliable, it's accessible, it's user-friendly, and, and also to, to put it in different languages because we also actually work with the Roma community and there's a very significant Roma community from Romania. So that information has to be translated into Romania Romanian as well, but also into Roma, which is uh, a Romani, which is the language of the Roma people themselves. So those efforts need to be intensified. Yeah, OK. Um, uh, well, let's move on to another story this week. Um, still related to COVID, actually, because Boris Johnson was heavily criticised for sitting next to 95-year-old David Attenborough at COP26 without a mask. He was asked about it on CNN. Take a look at this answer. Do you want to answer what's going around on social media. You brought up the national treasure, Sir David Attenborough. 
And there you all were in the plenary. He's 95 years old. He was wearing masks, and you weren't. It's all over the place. Right. I, I, I... You weren't wearing a mask yesterday, sitting next to 95-year-old national treasure David Attenborough. Right. I've been, I've been, you know, wearing a mask when in confined spaces with people that I don't uh, normally meet. And I think it's up to people to take a judgment about whether they're, whether they're, you know, at a reasonable distance from. Uh, from someone and uh, whether they're with someone they don't normally meet. That's what that's what that's the, the approach we take it. I don't know what that approach is. So I'm very confused by that answer. Um, but Boris Johnson, that was that was his big stage, wasn't it, this week, COP26. Um, he came under pressure actually for flying up to the conference instead of getting the train from London to Glasgow. Uh, overall, how do you think that conference that conference went? How, how I suppose the big leaders looked when you had the likes of Greta Thunberg saying blah, blah, blah. Well, this was true because um, the first two days of the conference were um, addressed by all of the leaders and princes and princesses and sheikhs and everybody that came along, over 100 of them, and they had three minutes each to speak. So that's 300 solid minutes of speaking at least over two days. So they all more or less said the same thing, that this was dreadful, climate change was happening, we were digging our own graves, treating the place like a toilet, etc., etc., and we really were going to commit ourselves to doing all sorts of things about it. And they all more or less said the same thing. Our Taoiseach got up and made a grand speech as well and said so. And they signed up to various things that were there. They signed up to, as I was saying, to reducing methane to 30%, reducing emissions by 30%. They signed up to, in fact, deforestation ending by the year 2030. <coughs> they signed up to all sorts of things. But will they come home and deliver in their own country? Shinny on Kesht. And one thing that you feel strongly about is the issue around licensing on trees and, and you know, the government pushing for biodiversity, but is it easy for people to do it? Well, I mean, growing trees is a wonderful thing. It's wonderful because the trees are the only thing that will take carbon out of the atmosphere. We're putting too much in. We've increased our emissions by 45% in the last, whatever, 200 years, mm. and we can take it out with trees. We've removed half the trees of the world since we started farming. Half of them are gone. So the big thing is plant trees. Ireland has 11% of the country covered in trees, the lowest in Europe ourselves in Malta. And yet, if you want to plant trees today in Ireland, you can only plant a quarter of a hectare without having to apply for a licence. And then you have to wait till the licence is issued and this is taking up to two years. If you want to fell, you have to apply for a licence two more years. If you want to have to thin out your crops, because you do in the meanwhile, you have to apply for a licence. So we're actually exporting little baby trees to be planted in Scotland because we can't plant them on our own land. We cannot use cut down our trees for our sawmills where 12,000 rural people are employed yeah. because we have to have a licence. And the okay. licenses are not being issued quickly enough. Why not? Why doesn't the department issue them Your frustration enough? is something that has probably been voiced by a lot of people around plans and action. Isn't that right, Sarah, in relation? That's, that's really at the, the, the heart of all of this. Exactly. We've seen these big plans today. You know, it's 125 billion. I think there was something like 475 actions within the climate action plan today. But it's actually about delivering what's been set out. And also, I think the government have a big task in hand in terms of bringing people along with them, because it's great to say we need electric cars, we need to retrofit homes. But, you know, these are going to be costly measures. I know there's grants, I know there's low-cost loans, that kind of thing, but there will be a cost for households yeah. and the government need to stress the importance of these measures are for, you know, your children, your, your grandchildren, that kind of thing. Yeah, do you think it'll take a lot of convincing to get people over the line? Not only that, it'll take money as well, won't it, Martin? 
Well, my understanding is from reading an article in the Irish Times, uh, it's estimated it'll cost £125 billion to introduce the measures that's outlined in, the, in the, the plan that was launched today. It's not clear where that uh, money is going to be sourced from uh, and so, so forth. So that's a bit of a challenge. And it's quite easy, easy to make commitments and to make declarations and to develop strategies. But the real challenge, as we all know, is going to be in the implementation. That's where the real okay. hard work will take place. But just in relation to Boris Johnson, that's a really serious incident. I know we can have a bit of a giggle at it, but too often uh, during this pandemic, we've seen people from the higher echelons of society in politics, in judiciary, in sport, who have actually broken the rules. And that undermines the messaging from organisations such as me and many others to try and convince members of our own community to show more responsible behaviour and obey the, obey the public health guidelines. So incidents of that is actually quite undermining. That's a really serious issue. Mm, and finally, just to the story of Cleo Smith, um, just onto a really good news story that ended the week. Um, really positive news. A four-year-old found 18 days after she went missing. Yeah, it's definitely been the good news story of the week and definitely the story that we needed. Um, you know, it was 18 days later. At that point, you're thinking the outcome won't be good. Um, a man has been charged in relation to the abduction. Okay. Terence Kelly, 36, and not known to the family, and he's a local man from okay. their town. OK, little Cleo, safe and well. That is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.